Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bardflies, a podcast about messy divorces, a king who loves to swipe right, and a lot of people named Thomas. This week, a play with a royal entrance so explosive that it literally burned down the Globe Theater. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 38, Rope a Pope. I'm Henry the Eighth, I am. Henry the Eighth, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. She's been married seven times. Will, before we dive into our plot summary here, I know that the providence of this play is a little bit different. So, do you have any information on that that you can quickly share with our listeners? Yes, James, I do. So, we've known that Shakespeare's worked with some collaborators, and we've talked about that glancingly in other plays. This particular play and uh, our last play that we'll be doing next episode, The Two Noble Kinsmen, were both co-authored with John Fletcher. And there's been some debate about who wrote what scenes. For a while, people thought it wasn't Shakespeare, or that it was Shakespeare, and then it was people, the scholarship sort of moved towards saying Fletcher. Now the general consensus is this was a co-authored piece. Shakespeare wrote some of the acts and scenes and some of the the great soliloquies, and Fletcher did uh, many of them as well. So it's actually really more properly a jointly authored piece, which of course may be true of some of the other plays as well that we that we don't necessarily know about, but quite a standard practice for the time. Got it. Thank you. Well, you know, if Shakespeare's name is on it, we do it. So on that note, Will, can you please tell us the plot of King Henry VIII? With pleasure, James. In this second draft of history, our tale begins with England at seeming tranquility abroad and definite hidden discord at home. Henry VIII has recently returned from a lavish summit with the King of France in Calais. Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, Henry's chief advisor and the mastermind of the meeting, has brought about warmer relations between the two kingdoms, but he is not so popular with many English nobles in court. The lowly son of a butcher, the ruthless, ambitious, and wealthy Wolsey is the subject of immense jealousy and resentment. Among his enemies is the Duke of Buckingham, one of the most powerful nobles in England. In a private meeting with other noblemen, the Duke argues that Wolsey is accepting bribes from the Holy Roman Emperor to manipulate Henry and is generally a no-good scoundrel. Almost as soon as he utters these private accusations, however, Wolsey's men burst in to arrest him for treason. This comes as unpleasant news to Henry's wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon, who is increasingly suspicious of the wily cardinal's growing power. She protests Buckingham's detention and tells Henry that Wolsey has levied high taxes on the people for personal gain. The king overturns Wolsey's measures but assents to Buckingham's trial, while the crafty Wolsey spreads the rumor that he is in fact responsible for the tax relief. Amid these machinations, Henry attends a lavish fete at Wolsey's palace where he dances with the beautiful Anne Boleyn, one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting, and, we learn later, a woman of Protestant sympathies. Noticing the king's interest in Anne, and increasing frustration with the lack of a male heir, Wolsey begins to lay the groundwork for the king to divorce Catherine. His moves anger the dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, and lead Anne to sympathize with the virtuous queen, even as Henry begins to grant her titles and favors as signs of his affection. Wolsey's plans involve the visiting Cardinal Campeus will serve as a judge in a trial that will establish the invalidity of Henry's marriage to Catherine. At the trial, Catherine objects and rebukes Wolsey, but the king asserts that his doubts about their marriage are at issue. God may be cursing their union due to Catherine's first marriage to Henry's elder brother, Arthur, which may make their relationship incestuous under canon law. Catherine, however, stands firm and asserts her innocence and the rectitude of their relationship with great conviction and leaves the courtroom, leading Henry and Campeus to suspend the proceedings. Wolsey and Campeus then visit Catherine privately, urging her to return and allow the marriage to be voided. She resists and protests their deceit and immorality at first, but eventually relents under their pressure and in the face of their assurances that she and her daughter Mary will be safe and provided for after the divorce. All is not well for Wolsey, however. Suffolk, Norfolk, and the other nobles are plotting his downfall. 
Wolsey's letters to Rome are misdelivered to the king and reveal that he wants the Pope to refuse to grant the divorce and believes that Henry's real motive is his lust for Anne, all while talking out of the other side of his mouth to his royal master. Wolsey's fall from grace is swift. He sends away his servant, Thomas Cromwell, so as not to taint him with disgrace, and is swiftly replaced by Thomas More as Lord Chancellor. Following the downfall of Wolsey, Henry has his new favorite cleric, Thomas Cranmer, marry him and Anne, formally breaking from the Roman Catholic Church in the process. And James, by my count, I just want to note, there's at least four people named Thomas in this play. I mean, not to mention, who knows how many of the dukes actually have that as their first name. Popular right. name, apparently. Quite right. The, uh, great, great name, strong name. Cranmer soon becomes Henry's new Archbishop of Canterbury and a court favorite. With Anne's rise comes Wolsey's death in isolation at a monastery and the decline of the long-suffering Catherine, who offers a deathbed blessing to the king and his new queen from afar, while asking that Henry look after her daughter. The death of Wolsey hardly smooths the waters at court, however. Anne's swift pregnancy, Cromwell's rising clout, and the king's affinity for Cranmer lead to new factional strife. Bishop Stephen Gardner and his noble allies accuse Cranmer of Protestant sympathies in a private audience with the king. But Henry gives Cranmer his full backing and rebukes his counsel, leading to insincere apologies from Gardner and his goons. Almost immediately thereafter, we see scenes of crowded public rejoicing on the day of the newborn Princess Elizabeth's baptism by Cranmer, who then prophesies that the nation will prosper under her wise and godly rule, and though she will die a virgin queen, her successor, and Shakespeare's patron, will help England flourish. Thank you, Will. A stirring plot summary covering uh, a very turbulent and, uh, I would say, somewhat legendary period in English history. On that note, given how familiar I think this period is, I think it's probably for our listeners, you know, unless any of our listeners are specialists in particular other areas of, of English history, I would suspect that this is almost certainly the most familiar period of any of the history plays that Shakespeare has covered. And sort of in line with that, it also is nearer to Shakespeare's own time than any of the history plays that he did as a young man. I mean, right, like Henry VIII is probably something like 70 years prior to him or something like that. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I think and this is, the this nearest, is about 80. Other than that is something like Henry VI or Richard III, right? And that was another, you know, maybe another 50 years prior to that. So this is a, a period that was closer to Shakespeare than any of those plays and also I think more familiar to us. And I think in being so close to Shakespeare's own time, it, this play has a real sense of having a political motivation or a more overt political motivation, I guess I should say, than some of those other plays, which are political, but I think, and maybe this is a good place to start, is tell me if you disagree with this, but I feel like the earlier history plays, while political, are maybe a little bit more theoretical or philosophical in their political outlook. I mean, even a play like King John is kind of anti-clerical, and you can see how it relates to some of the contemporary things that were happening in England at the time, but it's not so directly commenting, I think, on contemporary politics. Whereas this play really feels like it is very much about the 1610s or the 16 aughts. Yes. Do you think that's accurate or do you think that I'm separating this play from the other history plays too much? Yeah, I suppose the way I'd break it down, James, is as follows. I think that the other plays, the other history plays, they all had a subtext where I think a educated or thoughtful member of Shakespeare's audience would understand it possibly to be a commentary on contemporary political issues. There would be stand-in characters maybe for what was going on in Shakespeare's day at court and certainly themes about English patriotism, conflict with Europe, the ennoblement of England as a country that was growing in power. And, you know, it can be read either at a surface level of kind of Englishness and English patriotism, 
on the one hand, but it is a little bit more removed, partially because the the people were figures of legend uh, to a greater extent than Henry VIII was. You know, if you're thinking 80 years gap between the writing of this play and when the events were more or less transpiring, even with shorter lifespans, everybody would have been aware of the tremendous change and upheaval in English society because of the English Reformation and, you know, Mary's rule and then Elizabeth's reign. That would have touched almost everyone in some way, right? Even if, yeah. you know, it wasn't the dominant factor in everyone's daily lives, everyone would have known what it was talking about. And, right, the Tudor to Stuart handoff which happened during Shakespeare's lifetime. You know, there's there's something direct here about Henry VIII leading into Mary and then Elizabeth, and obviously briefly his son was, was ruling as well. But the main thing is you're going from Tudors to Stuarts, and that's a transition everybody who's watching this has pretty much lived through or has experienced. So it's directly relating to the legitimacy of the current monarch, which is why Cranmer gives his whole speech at the end, sort of saying, Elizabeth's going to be great. And then James is going to be great implicitly, right? So yeah. I think that there's a much more direct political motive that isn't kind of obscured in the subtext. Whereas before, you know, the other plays, there's a subtext, which I'm sure people would have been aware of, but it's not really topical in the same sense. And you view that subtext as being specifically about shoring up or extolling the virtues of the reign of James I. I think it's getting closer to being explicitly that because of Cranmer's prophecy at the end where he's sort of saying, you know, I've like I basically know mm. that Elizabeth's going to have a great reign and then her successor is also going to have a great reign. I think it's it's much more um open and direct about that whereas everything's a little bit uh, less direct even if somebody watching say um King John is going to know that the basic message is Protestants good, Catholics bad, England good, France and yeah. Italy, you know, a Holy Roman so Empire, good. Spain, all bad. You know, like the politics of that would have been totally intelligible, I think, to the average person watching John. But uh, in this case, it's like, well, it's a little bit more literally in your face. And it's like, hey, James, that guy who's running things, He's part of this noble lineage, and um, good things have happened that are directly related to yeah. the, the present day. I would also say that this play's Protestant outlook is much more explicit than in other plays. I mean, I think we have seen other plays that have, you know, we both reference King John now. I, is it, I think there's a reference to it also in... Uh, and maybe it's measure for measure, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, oh, and, and of course, As You Like It has the whole thing about Malvolio being a Puritan, right? So there yes. are other plays that engage with this Reformation discourse or this dis discourse about Protestants versus Catholics. I would say that this play seems to me to be much more explicit in being a pro-Protestant play or, or having a specific religious agenda and outlook that it's trying to push forward. I, I mean, I would go so far as to say and I don't want to get too ahead of, of our other topics here, but I would go so far as to say that I view this play as being divided into two parts. You know, there's Acts 1 through 3, which end up being about the downfall of Wolsey, and then there's Acts 4 and 5, which end up being about the elevation of Cranmer and the downfall of the evil nobles, or, or yes. at least the foiling of the evil nobles. But the common thread sort of uniting both of those things is that it's about the origins and ultimate success of Protestantism in England and why that's a great thing. Yeah. Do yeah. you see that as well? or I think that's true. I mean, and to your point, this is about it being very explicit. They talk about, both in a disparaging sense through Gardner's words, about the Reformed movement or the Reformation movement. And they also talk about Lutheran sympathies, you know, Boleyn's Lutheran sympathies, which would have had a general you know, general meaning of Protestant, right, at the yeah. time, and was used as a pejorative by Catholics to describe Protestants in general, and then Luther and his followers eventually embraced it. But regardless, the point of it is, like, they're engaging explicitly in the discourse, whereas even, like, the earlier references to Puritans, you get the sense that's, um, to be totally blunt about it, that's Shakespeare kind of just taking the piss out of people that were loud and yeah. annoying in his view in his own time. This is much more It's almost more of a topical. social comment than a political comment in that context. Yeah, 
Yeah, you're talking about, you know, Renaissance and early modern Italy. There's not really a... The religious politics are obviously quite radically different, but Puritan is a word everybody would have understood in Shakespeare's context, and it was a great opportunity to riff on people that he may have considered to be annoying killjoys in the context of the theatrical world. But in this case, yeah, it's like a a lot more literal. What's interesting about it and the politics of the play is other than Cranmer and maybe to a certain extent Cromwell, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously admirable male characters that are driving the politics forward. And mm-hmm. the queens, in my view, are sort of passive and virtuous for the most part, you know, which is sort of funny. So it's almost like as if Providence is kind of working through all of these flawed people yeah. to ensure the triumph of goodly religion in England. But that's sort of strange, right? Because in all of the other plays, I feel like the kings are unambiguously well not not unambiguously but many of them are much more explicitly hero characters whereas henry sort of drops in and drops out throughout well the, yeah throughout the at narrative. the very least heroic in the sense of uh, I, I think we should maybe stay away from hero characters with the contemporary positive yeah. connotation that might have but but definitely heroic characters in being large personalities who are driving events forward and i would say to some degree it seems like for shakespeare even if you're a bad king or your policies are bad or you're evil, right. that's still better than being an ineffectual king like Henry VI. Yes, yes. When we say heroic, as you say, it's about people who are driving events and are sort of the centerpiece of the play. And obviously Henry serves that role in one sense. But I guess my point is uh, he's not portrayed in like always morally positive terms. You sort of have this, this almost Greek chorus of nameless nobles at the beginning of each act who catch you up on what's been going on. And there's definitely a, a wonderful moment where two of them are saying, well... It seems the marriage with his brother's wife has crept too near his conscience. No, his conscience has crept too near another lady. It is so. There is this sort of commentary that it's actually um, much more sordid than some of the noble reasons for which all of these events get used. And uh, I think you can see that too in Wolsey's letters to the Pope where he is basically saying, I think that the king really just has the hots for Anne Bullen, and that's why all of this is happening. In a way, like, where's the lie, right? Like, Wolsey is basically being honest in his assessment of the situation. And unfortunately, it's probably a little too much for Henry to actually bear to know that his motives are are less than pure, shall we say, even if it gets used for good ends, ultimately. So in that sense, I think the play's politics are a little bit, you know, it's it's a happy story from Shakespeare's standpoint, but worked through kind of flawed people, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, Henry, look, I think the play really has two villains here. You know, Wolsey is Although Wolsey has moments where he comes across as sympathetic. I mean, I think Wolsey is basically here to be a villain, But then also Wolsey's enemies, the scheming nobles, are also villains, right? Henry is interesting, and and maybe, Will, we should talk a little bit about Henry, not just in this play, but about portrayals of Henry Mm. in other media, just because he is such a familiar, you know, at this point, he's almost like a stock character, right? Right. As, As a historical figure. But he, to me, feels more neutral in a way in this play, where the play doesn't seem to, and perhaps this is because... As we discussed, right, this is written at the beginning of James's reign. Presumably, Elizabeth is the son of Henry, and she's the great mm-hmm. leader. I mean, you know, it, it definitely could be that Shakespeare just doesn't want to criticize this figure, you know, this royal figure who's kind of the, the wellspring of the dynasty. But Henry reads as... He does some bad things. He does some good things. He's not really at the center of events a lot of the time. You know, it doesn't really have the feel that he's really either good or bad, (laughs) I think. I don't know if you had that same impression. I I think it's interesting. I think the modern conception of Henry is very much as a tyrant, you know, as as kind of an— If not an outright evil, then a tyrannical figure who is basically— bad and like mistreated women and pursued his own ends in a, in a somewhat tawdry way mm-hmm. i think in the context of henry's own time and i would pr- i would guess also shakespeare's own time henry was viewed as everything that a king should be and i think that's an interesting divergence 
But I, I, I guess where I come down on the politics of this, and, and maybe this isn't exactly a political statement, but I feel like Shakespeare's other history plays set the template by which we think about those kings and that history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And Shakespeare's version is the legend, right? Whereas mm-hmm. interestingly with this play, I think this is the only history play where the historical figure is actually larger than Shakespeare's character. Right, right. I think there's an element of truth to that. Obviously, Shakespeare's commentary on Henry aligns a little bit with our understanding of Henry in the contemporary world. You know, his his lust, his appetites being somewhat legendary. I mean, eventually, right, like Henry's gaining a lot of weight, particularly as he gets older and more mm-hmm. infirm. He's marrying all these women. Even people at the time would have recognized, I think, those things as unusual and distinctive and not necessarily wholly positive either but clearly he's riffing on a larger than life figure and character and he doesn't necessarily give uh henry amazingly memorable speeches per se you know it's not like he's creating one of the great all-time he feels more like a background character yeah definitely he's kind of in the background for most of the story of the play you know he's around whom events revolve but he's rarely a driver yeah you know in that way he sort of reminds me a little bit of Julius Caesar, although I think Julius Caesar in the play Julius Caesar is maybe a little bit more, I guess, uh, I guess even that character seems like he's, you know, similarly not super present on stage, but still feels like he is a driver of events. And here I would say Henry kind of feels like a passenger on events. Yeah. Maybe that's not right. I mean, anyway, the the, the treatment of the character is, is very at odds with, I think, at least my idea of him, and, you know, obviously my idea of him is informed, you know, I would say, Will, you and I are probably significantly more educated about this particular era of history than the layperson. But also, uh, you know, it's at odds with my vision of him as it's been handed down to me through all the other cultural depictions that we have of him, right? Through the Tudors, through Wolf Hall, through A Man for All Seasons, you know, all the various works of art and literature that have been about him. Yeah, yeah. I suppose his role, right, in this play is to adjudicate all of these disputes. And, you know, I think historically he had more definite opinions about some of the questions that are being raised. And they're they're somewhat hidden from us in this story. Yeah. Like the disquiet over his marriage to Catherine is framed almost somewhat sincerely, even though you get the sense from the sort of noble chorus that his motives may be less than wholly pure or sincere. Yeah. You know, I think what's interesting in those other portrayals is he's also in that role of dealing with a fractious court and nobles and clerics and and women who he may not be getting what he wants from them. And that often drives a lot of the drama. So in that sense, it's not dissimilar 100% because... Frequently, right, it is these other characters that have uh, much more elaborate agendas that are producing all of the fights that he needs to ultimately weigh in on one way or the other. But by portraying the focus on his divorce as kind of being a matter of genuine religious disquiet and maybe low-key lust on Henry's part, but without really giving you much Mm -hmm. interiority, you sort of lose that sense of him as kind of a driver of events, except when he comes in and is like, well... You know, no, I'm the one that wants to get divorced. Or, yeah, Cranmer seems like a good guy. You know, those are the moments where Henry actually puts his thumb on the scale in a decisive way. And I guess for trying and having Buckingham killed, basically. But those are the moments. But it's it's all really like Woolsey, the nobles, Gardner versus Cranmer, you know, with Cromwell as sort of providing an assist. That's where the real battlefield of the play, and Catherine, of course, is where the the battlefield of the play is is taking place. Yeah. Well, on that note, Will, I think let's switch gears a little bit, because I think Catherine in particular is an interesting figure to talk about, honestly, in some of the same context, actually, that we've been talking about with Henry, and Woolsey as well. I mean, I think Woolsey and Catherine are are an interesting counterpoint to me because they both fall from grace in fairly spectacular fashion. But the treatment of the two characters is quite different. Of course, tell me if you don't agree with with the way that I read it. But Catherine, to me, is treated... Like, in the same way that Henry is almost like a neutral figure, Mm. like morally, but someone by whom this great transformation is accomplished. 
in the context of the play, I mean, we don't want to make any comments on the actual politics of it and history and blah, blah, blah. But in the context of the play or the way that Shakespeare's presenting it, I think that's a relatively mm-hmm. accurate portrayal. Catherine, in a similar way, is this kind of ambivalent figure where she is at once a very well-respected and admirable character. I mean, people really talk about how great she is. I mean, she's the one who argues for the tax break, for the commons, and everything that is reported by other characters about her is pretty positive. And she has this very noble downfall speech where she blesses Henry and reaffirms her loyalty. Senor, in what have I offended you? What cause hath my behavior given to your displeasure that thus you should proceed to put me off and take your good grace from me? I, beyond all limit of what else is in the world, do love, prize, honor you, love you, my Lord. Heaven witness, I have been to you, a true and humble wife, at all times to your will, conformable, ever in fear to kindle your dislike, yea, subject to your countenance, glad or sorry, as I saw it incline. When was the hour that I ever contradicted your desire or made it not mine too? Or which of your friends have I not strove to love, although I knew he were mine enemy? Or what friend of mine that had to him derive your anger, did I continue in my liking? Nay, gave notice. He was from thence discharged. Sir, call to mind that I have been your wife in this obedience upward of 20 years and have been blessed with many children by you. Though they are lost, grief fills the room up of my absent children, lies down in their beds, walks up and down with me, Yet, there is your pearl, your Mary. If in the course and process of this time you can report and prove it to, against mine honor ought my bond to wedlock, or my love and duty, against your sacred person, in God's name, turn me away, and let the foulest contempt shut door upon me, and so give me up to the sharpest kind of justice. Please you, sir, the king, your father, was reputed for a prince most prudent of an excellent and an unmatched wit and judgment. Ferdinand, my father, king of Spain, was reckoned one the wisest prince that there had reigned by many a year before it is not to be questioned that they had gathered a wise counsel to them of every realm that did debate this business who deemed our marriage lawful. Therefore, I humbly beseech you, sir, to spare me till I may be by my friends in Spain advised, whose counsel I will implore. If not, in the name of God, your pleasure be fulfilled. And yet her downfall, it's like, she's great, but this needed to happen. She seems in this play to be collateral damage, mm-hmm. but like a necessary collateral damage. And it's kind of a shame and she's sympathetic, but history has to move on beyond her. Yes. Right? Yeah. Whereas Wolsey, I think has a much less positive portrayal than Catherine, but also has a moment of self-recognition that is very human mm-hmm. at the moment of his fall. I mean, I yeah. think ultimately he is a much less positive figure than she is. What do you think we we can take away from that contrast of those two characters? Yeah, so comment on the contrast and then on the way the play is treating both characters and the history here. So 
I think with both of those, you're meant to understand that these are sort of the collateral damage, as you put it, of history in the sense that they weren't all bad. You know, and in Catherine's case, they were quite positive, but sometimes bad things happen to good people and good results from it. And sometimes bad people can be sympathetic and can have a moment of clarity when they reach their point of excess and and downfall, right? And I think that's something Shakespeare does over and over again in his plays. But in this case, I think he's trying to make a much more definite point about history and politics in general. You know, the alternate title to this play is All is True, which might have been tongue-in-cheek. I mean, there was sort of an element of that in play titles uh, at this time. But there's this wonderful prologue right at the outset of the play, where the narrator says, Think ye see the very persons of our noble story as they were living. Think you see them great, and followed with the general throng and sweat of thousand friends. Then, in a moment, see how soon this mightiness meets misery. And if you can be merry, then I'll say, a man may weep upon his wedding day. And to me, that's, one, an appeal for the audience to sort of treat what they're seeing on stage as actual historical kind of events and historical reality and sort of suspend their disbelief in a more profound way, maybe, than even Henry V. But there's also this element of, like, it's messy. You know, there's great sadness and great, you know, happiness and joy. There's triumph and there's a great fall but this is actually being imposed upon to historical persons with whom many of the people in the audience would have been familiar. So I suppose that's sort of what's going on with those two downfall speeches, in my view, is that it's to say, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people, and sometimes bad people can have good insight and can be uniquely, um, you know, this isn't just a fictional kind of construct. Like these these people actually existed and these are sort of elements of their story as kind of being gears in the wheels of history turning for good in Shakespeare's view. But there's tragedy in that that goes beyond just theatrical tragedy. Yeah, I can't, I can't really disagree with, with any of that. I mean, I guess my only further question on it is do you think either of these characters is serving a larger purpose, either thematically or narratively, than making that point about history moving beyond us? <laughs> right? I, you know, Woolsey, and just to get to tip my hand here, I, I think Catherine, I would say, and the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think, I think Catherine sort of exists in this play to be a, and I also will, I would say, and this is getting a little extra textual, I wouldn't be surprised if part of it is that Shakespeare didn't really know what to, or Shakespeare and Fletcher, I suppose, didn't really know what to do with Catherine, right? Of like, you know, how do you treat this character? I mean, she's clearly wronged, but there's clearly, from their perspective, some great good thing that came from it. Woolsey seems to be a little bit more complex and interesting, and, and maybe we should play that downfall speech here. A long farewell to all my greatness. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes. Tomorrow blossoms and bears his blushing honours thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost. And when he thinks, good easy man, full surely his greatness is a ripening, nips his root, and then he falls, as I do. I have ventured, like little wanton boys that swim on bladders, this many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth. My high-blown pride at length broke under me, and now has left me, weary and old with service, to the mercy of a rude stream that must forever hide me. Vain pomp and glory of this world, I hate she. I feel my heart new opened. Oh, how wretched is that poor man that hangs on princes' favours. There is, betwixt that smile we would aspire to, that sweet aspect of princes, and their ruin 
more pangs and fears than wars or women have. And when he falls, he falls like Lucifer, never to hope again. The image we've had of Wolsey based on his behavior over the course of the play is very much one of duplicity. You know, he's a little bit a little bit light corruption, I would say. You know, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth with Henry. He's trying to take credit for things that Henry's doing. He's enriching himself. And then in this final moment, he seems to have this moment of recognition, realizing that his pride has led him astray. So it, to me, it feels like, in contrast to Catherine, who just is kind of a victim of mm. circumstance, Wolsey seems to be also serving as a little bit of a parable or as a little bit of a morality tale. To me, do you think that's too simplistic a reading of him? No, I think there's, um, I think there's definitely something there to that. I think that you know, in his case, right, there's aspects of Wolsey's rise and fall, much like actually the historical Thomas Cromwell and both of these men's treatment in the Wolf Hall series by Hilary Mantel, where they're both men of humble origin but great talent, and they rise far above their station and are dealing often with nobles who are no more admirable and certainly no less ruthless than they are, right? And so in that sense, you can tell how Woolsey may have been an admirable character, but is the great monologue that we just played says he's far outswum his depth, right? He got to the point of kind of his apex of power and clearly exceeded kind of his reach and was was playing in ways that ended up getting him undone. You know, he indulged in vices. He thought that he could get away with sort of controlling events in the realm, and he made a lot of enemies. And ultimately, when things uh, failed to materialize in exactly the way that the king and the nobles uh, had sort of hoped for, he had his downfall. So I do think there's a bit of a parable there. And, you know, in some ways, he also serves this role dramatically in the story of, you know, he's sort of this weird go-between, right? He's a go-between Rome and Henry. He's clearly sort of in it to aggrandize himself, but he's not without sympathies or recognition of England's unique place in the world. And, you know, he's not an unsympathetic character, especially in his downfall and especially when he sends away Cromwell to avoid disgracing him and to allow him to have kind of a political career, which becomes instrumental to the redemption of the realm eventually in the, you know, kind of implicit subtext of the story. So, yeah, I think he serves kind of a more complex role than Catherine, who is there to just kind of be saintly and to die, you know, sort of tragically, but is a sort of necessity for the mm-hmm. salvation of the realm. Wolsey gets to be a bit more active, I think, in the, in the final analysis. Yeah, I agree. James, let me ask you this. We've talked a lot about a play that has a great deal of specific historical context. It's extremely topical, right? I think that's fair to say. Do you think this play can really be successfully performed outside of that context? Can it be more made more relevant to, to themes today? Is it timeless in the same way that some of the other plays feel? Or is it really highly contingent and maybe in like, a hundred years, people won't really get it. Kind of curious what you what you think about the play's topicality and, and what that does to its uh, power. Well, I, I honestly don't know that, you know, you say in a hundred years people won't get it. I don't know if people would get it today, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think there is stuff in the play that is really interesting. And, you know, you need to focus on those things. I think in particular, the pathos of a figure like Catherine, mm-hmm. or, or to focus on, you know, I think... Woolsey, in a contemporary reading, is a far more sympathetic character than he probably was in Shakespeare's day, right? I mean, I think in Shakespeare's day and in that sort of very hierarchical society of the late 1500s, early 1600s, the idea of the butcher's son becoming the most powerful man in England and leading the king or or talking out of both sides of his mouth to the king would be a threat to the social order in a way that I think today, in a from more egalitarian or democratic worldview, might be more sympathetic, right? I mean, I think it's possible that even you and I read Woolsey's downfall speech as more sympathetic than maybe someone at that time would have. So I feel like I'm kind of saying two different things here, but I think the crux of it is the things you would need to focus on are those, and it would be sort of emphasizing Mm -hmm. Catherine and Woolsey's characters and making it more about their downfalls and more about that fatalism of history 
and mm-hmm. the, the tragedy of these people who are left behind by the forward motion of events. Mm-hmm. You know, I think off the top of my head, I would say maybe the thing you would need to do would be to just not perform the last two acts. <laughs> I think if you made it about the double downfall of Catherine and Wolsey and didn't worry so much about the prebendary's plot with Cranmer, sad for me because I personally am very interested in Cranmer's career, but probably not so sad for uh, most contemporary audience members, mm. you know, and removed all the stuff that's about praising Elizabeth and praising James and that overt final political flourish. That to me is the way that you could reorient it. And and basically what, what I think that would ultimately look like would be more or less saying Shakespeare's thematic unity of making a play about the victory of Protestantism is not the thematic unity that we want our play to be about. We want our play to be about the downfall of these two characters and the pathos of that. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I guess the one area where I might slightly disagree or offer a a slightly different interpretation, if you watch, say, The Tudors on Showtime, obviously there's a fair amount of concern with the same plots and themes, but there is an element of the way popular dramas unfold, particularly on prestige television, where you basically just treat these historical events as not just costume drama, but it's almost like fictional world building, right? You're not really expecting people to be entirely invested in the specifics of the controversy any more than they would have any sense of what the Targaryen dynasty and various conflicts are in Game of Thrones, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's all an invented kind of history, and you have no sort of a priori interest or commitment in it the way that you might have if you watched this back in 1613 or whatever, right, about the religious outcomes and some of the political outcomes. But you can still be sort of entertained and intrigued by it. So there might be life for this play, But where I do agree with you is it's not really separable from these broader themes of interest like social mobility, you know, gender relations, love and marriage. You really do have to like play those up, I think, to get it some extra oomph and to draw out those really powerful speeches and, and themes. And I guess one way of thinking about this, again, is, you know, you have the Tudors, which takes the somewhat anachronistically the kind of the game of thrones sort of style of like we're going to do an epic drama you might not know anything about the specific controversies but lots of intrigue lots of murder lots of like sex right the other side of it is um you could do it like wolf hall the pbs series with the great mark rylance and damian lewis and jonathan price claire foy and they're a little bit more explicit about the religious themes but it's slightly reframed where, you know, the Protestants are aligned with more humane and sincere and pure religious values against sort of the corruption of the papacy. But it almost feels more like, oh, they're the modernizers and the court mm-hmm. nobles who are Catholic and the other clerics are corrupt and are backward, right? And are sort of regressive and oppressive of the people. So maybe you can sort of tweak and draw that stuff out and get some extra oomph out of the religious conflict. In any case, right, I don't know that people are going to be quite as absorbed with the Protestant-Catholic controversy in and of itself, even now or in 100 years, certainly. So, Yeah. I think my last word on this, Will, and this particular question of like how this play could be modernized or, or what it means to a modern audience is going back to what we were saying about Henry VIII in history being the only Shakespearean king who is larger than his Shakespearean counterpart. I think what I see with this is that with the rest of Shakespeare's plays, every generation has a new take Mm. on Shakespeare, on on what Shakespeare is telling them and saying about the world. Whereas Mm -hmm. in this case, it's that every new generation has its new take on Henry VIII, right? And Shakespeare's take on Henry VIII is a reflection of the 1610s, whereas a Broadway show like Six is about contemporary concerns about the Me Too era, right, and treatment of women, where a film and a play like A Man for All Seasons is really about freedom of conscience and resistance to tyrannical authority and the interests of that in the context of, like, the McCarthy era, right? So I think ultimately that's why I come down on the side of I don't really think that 
Shakespeare's treatment of Henry VIII is necessary, almost. Henry VIII and, and that whole story has so much drama within it that it's something that gets reinterpreted by each generation. And, like, obviously that's true of the other Shakespearean kings, right, in, in history. But I think in those cases, it's Shakespeare's template that is giving us so much more to think about. Whereas here, it's the history that's giving us those things to think about. Yeah, that's really well said, James. I really uh, think that that's quite right. I, you know, in some ways, it's just the story of Henry VIII is, and his court is dramatic and interesting enough, even if some of the context and the ways in which it's interesting changes. These are larger-than-life characters. They were in Shakespeare's time. They are, you know, in our time and in between then, right? So, you know, in that sense, in the long arc of history, maybe Henry VIII isn't one of the characters that people remember forever, but there's a reason why we continue to be interested in him that goes well beyond yeah. these other considerations. Well, well, I agree with that, and I think that gives us a pretty good sense of where we stand going into the rankings. Yeah, But now that we've had this conversation and we've talked about the play and the characters, where would you say you rank this one uh, on the list? So this one's tough. You know, I think the most, the most ready analog is uh, somewhere between King John in terms of its sort of general structure and the other history plays, which are much better. But I, I kind of, I liked this one more than I thought that I would. I think I might actually put it despite sort of the unevenness and everything else, I might actually put it at my... Eh, I'm going to put it at my new 23 spot, which is above All's Well That Ends Well and below Henry VI Part One. Wow. Well, higher than I would have expected, uh, to be honest. I don't think that this is a bad play at all, actually. I just, you know, I happen to think that there are things about it that work really well, but you'd really have to stage it carefully. And the other thing to note about the, the dramaturgy of this particular play is it was really sumptuously staged. And, you know, the cannon that was fired during the performance in the second or third night ended up burning down the Globe Theater, as we alluded to, but also the stage directions and the costumes and the processionals, they're all very over the top. So a lot, I think, depends on the execution and the acting, and it could be totally bad or totally uh, intriguing and, and well done. So I think putting it in the middle feels appropriate to me. Mm -hmm. um, what about yourself? So I, I agree. I, I think the King John comparison is a good one. And, you know, my reaction to the play, I think I liked it a little bit less than you did. My reaction to it is, in the same way that we were talking about Henry being kind of a neutral character, I would say I feel like this play is kind of a neutral play to me. Like, it's not great. It's not bad. It's a little bit blah. So, you know, in that context, when I look at the list, I think that this sort of zone of comedy of errors, Henry VI Part Three, King John, feels like that's sort of the zone where those kinds of plays live before we get into the the set of plays that I think are actively not good <laughs> mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And so, you know, really that then becomes within the context of those three plays, you know, where do I rank it in that context? You know, I think ultimately it's going to have to go below all three of them. So I think it becomes my new 31. And the reason for that is because I think each of those three plays has some quality that is at least really interesting. I mean, I think the bastard in King John and the sort of nationalist element of that play, Henry VI Part Three, the first appearance of the future Richard III, who kind of leaps off the page as this villainous figure. And Comedy of Errors is like very tightly constructed and has like a very well-constructed sort of Aristotelian plot as well as having some very funny bits. So I think... In that context, for me, it goes below the three of those, but above my sort of bottom quartile, which are the plays that I think are more bad than good, ultimately. So long story short, it becomes my number 31. And then, Will, who would you uh, who would you anoint the MVP of this play? I would ultimately say, based on what's on the page, that Wolsey is the man. Friend of the pod and uh, guest on the pod, Elliot Cohen, likes to talk about the wonderful downfall speech by Woolsey about outswimming your depth. And he was like, he, he likes to comment, well, I read that a few years ago or saw it performed a few years ago. And um, I know that guy in Washington. Uh, <laughs> and I think that that's very true, right? You've been in the corridors with people like Woolsey. And I think that speech in and of itself is really a, a wonderful piece of writing and kind of redeems 
some of the more flat parts of this play. Uh, what about yourself? I think it's a hard one to answer, to be honest. But in the final analysis, and I'm somewhat reacting to your choice of Woolsey here, I think I might have chosen Woolsey if you had not, but I think I'll give it to Catherine as a one of the only, probably the only unambiguously positive figure in the play and someone who has her own wonderful speeches and I think deserves to be recognized alongside Woolsey in the rankings. So James, on that note, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for our listeners this week? I do, Will. I... Recently, um, maybe a couple weeks ago, I watched a new documentary called Fire of Love, which is, (laughs) cheesy title aside, it is the story of two French volcanologists, a man and a woman who fell in love in the 1960s and spent their lives going around studying volcanoes and making films about it to fund their research. So there's this amazing material in it of them A lot of it is on pristine or what appears to be pretty pristine film of them studying these volcanoes and picking up the lava, etc. But there's this unique take on it where it's really put together as a love story. And I would say ultimately they don't quite have all the material that they really need to sell that story. So a lot of it gets filled in by a narrator. Nonetheless, I think it's the right take and it's a really interesting way of portraying this archive that they have. And really terrific music and just overall like a pretty enjoyable film experience. So, you know, I don't think it's in theaters anymore. I had the great opportunity to see it in the movie theater, but I would definitely recommend whenever that comes to, I think it's a Nat Geo film, so it'll probably be on Hulu or, or Disney Plus. But um, whenever it comes to streaming, I would definitely recommend that people check that out. Well, James, it sounds incendiary. Can you give us the title one more time? That is Fire of Love and is directed by Sarah Dosa. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, we'll be tackling the Bard's final, yes, final play, The Two Noble Kinsmen. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bard Flies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.